praise you, our Lord, for the grace that has been extended to us, and I pray that we'd understand it better, grow in its light, that we would revel in the work that you have done in grace to save us from our sin and to give us hope in eternal days where we will forever consider your grace. We thank you for the promises that are reflected in this hymn and these songs that we've sung and praise you for your grace and ask that under that grace we might grow as a church and that you would draw to yourself those who have not yet seen and perceived how amazing grace is. Uh, Draw them to Christ crucified and risen. We pray even through the words of this sermon and the text of this passage. Uh, Lead us and direct us as a church to grow in faith as we rejoice in the grace that has been extended to us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Find your way to Titus chapter 2. Let's notice together at verse 11, Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, just to allow these words to sink down into our soul and to consider them together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, un, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Does God's grace amaze you? We've sung that great hymn. Do we perceive the wonder of God's grace, His undeserved, life-changing grace that's extended to us in Christ's death in our place and in His life that He gives to us eternally? If you say, yes, grace does indeed amaze me, there's good news, and that is that that is only begun as we consider forever the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7 makes this clear as we've just read it. It promises that we will discover the immeasurable riches of God's grace to us in Christ for all eternity. We will never cease to consider the depths of that grace, ever. And this means that if I'm truly alive in God's grace in this life, I'm experiencing eternal life right now. We're not experiencing eternal life as we will someday. We will enjoy it far more in the age to come and perceive it far better in the age to come. But it is eternal life and it changes everything. Several years ago, Pastor Paul and I had the opportunity to lead a Bible study at the Shakopee Jail. To this day, it's the only Bible study that I've ever led where there was routine swearing and where it was not unusual to fear that maybe a couple of the participants in the study might start taking a swing at each other. It was very interesting work, but we thank God for those memories. But one day I carefully described how Jesus died in the sinner's place as the final sacrifice for sin. The final Lamb of God. 
bearing our sin in his body, giving to those who believe his righteousness. And there was an inmate named Michael who hung on every word. And as the sheer grace of Christ's substitutionary atonement hit home with him, he just blurted out in the middle of the study, that's powerful. A few weeks later, as we continued to teach the gospel, Michael blurted out again in the study, this changes everything. He got it. This wasn't a man schooled in religion, but he was grasping the fundamental truths of God's saving grace. In those two responses, he grasped the grand agenda of God's saving grace. God's grace powerfully saves us from eternal judgment, and it transforms our daily lives. It is powerful. God's grace saves us forever. And it changes everything. God's grace purifies us for good works and godly living in this world. We return to this theme in Titus chapter 2 today, focusing on verses 11 through 15, but Let's notice, first of all, in the setting here, the the bookends of verses 1 and 15. In verse 1 of chapter 2, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then in verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So, verse 15, declare. This is what God says. This is what he has revealed. This is sound doctrine exhort that is to say call the congregation to act to say this is what you must do in response to what God has said and then rebuke this is what you must stop doing this is what you must stop believing and do this Titus with all authority that is he is to speak as God's ambassador to the church And in this, let no one disregard you. Get their attention, keep their attention, call them to action, stand up to any false doctrine, and don't shy away from true doctrine. As Paul himself said, I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. I've kept nothing from you. No doctrinal truth was held back. That, Titus, is how I want you to live on the island of Crete, and to establish and help churches there on the island, to speak the truth of God, to preach the Word of God. So now between these kind of bookends of verses 1 and 15... He now, we, we then considered last week, verses 2 through 10, the ethical commands as he kind of crisscrosses through the church and calls people to specific responses in the Christian life, called to godly living by various uh, categories of church members. And then we come to verses 11 through 14, which provide the foundation for such living, the sound doctrine on which everything rests. You see the word for in verse 11. That word for is, it indicates we're now going to discuss the foundation on everything. And in a sense, Paul kind of operates the other way than he normally does here. Normally, he lays out the indicative followed by the imperative. That means the truth followed by then do this. 
Think of the book of Ephesians, kind of divided in half that way. Here's the truth, then you're to do this. Here he kind of goes the other way around in verses 2 through 10. Here's what you are to do. Here's how Christians are to live. Now, verses 11 through 14, here's the foundation of it all. This is what changes everything. This is the power that changes everything in the grace of God. With that in view, then, we move to verse 11, where we see God's grace saves his people from judgment in the age to come. Verse 11, for, call them to live this way, verses 2 through 10, older men, older women, young women, younger men, you, Titus, bond servants, call them to live this way for For this reason, or because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, past tense. The grace, here shorthand, for God sending Jesus to redeem his people from sin. Jesus personifies God's grace, and his mission delivers that grace, and he appeared. This word is very interesting in the Greek language, it was actually a technical term that was used in various situations for one who appears suddenly to render aid like light of dawn piercing the darkness. So Christ, in the best sense of the word, invaded this world. He came as light appearing to deliver, to meet our spiritual need and our spiritual depravity. We were just to grab a thread from this text, chapter 1 and verse 16, we were detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's who we were in and of ourselves. But Christ appeared. He came to deliver. He came to redeem. Bringing salvation for all people. That is, by sending Christ, the Father provides salvation from the eternal judgment we deserve for our sins. When we speak of our salvation, we're saved from God. We are saved from His judgment. We are saved from the judgment that we deserve. But He meets us not with judgment, but with grace, bringing salvation. This grace delivers eternal rescue for all people. Does that mean that then every individual is saved in the end? Of course, that's not the idea. Jesus clearly said that the road that leads to eternal life is narrow and few find it. The road that leads to destruction is broad and many find it. So that's clearly not the idea. But how does it then bring salvation for all people? I think the idea is the total price of all that could ever atone for human sin was paid by Christ. Paid for all who believe, no matter who they are. For all sorts of people. There's no other plan. There's no other saving uh, scheme. This is it. This is the salvation that is for the lost. And this grace of God saves his people from the eternal judgment we deserve by breaking his law. From lawlessness. He rescues us from the judgment that we thus deserve. Uh, deserve for breaking his law, for glorifying ourselves, for worshiping false gods. And I would say if you're here apart from Christ, and you say I'm not a Christian or I don't have a sense that I have a living relationship with God through Christ, there's good news here as there is also warning, but it is this. 
There's no other source of grace. This is the grace of God for all people. We receive justly His judgment for breaking His law and rejecting Him for who He is, King of kings and Lord of lords, or we can receive His grace. And the beauty is that that's all narrowed down for us here in the death and resurrection of Christ. The appearance of Christ to pay the penalty of sin and to give saving life, it's all right here. You cannot call for justice. It's not justice that you need. It's not fairness that you need. It's not a way that you can earn. What you need is grace. You need God to look upon you and say, I will not bring my judgment upon you, but I will extend to you my grace. And that grace is in the historical appearance of Jesus' death and resurrection and in the theological meaning. Dying for the sinner to give eternal life to those who place their faith and their trust in Him. And I would call you you to put your faith in Him. There's no other grace, no other source. It is the salvation for all people. Secondly, God's grace then purifies his people for a life of godliness in the present age. We might say of the first, salvation. Of the second point, sanctification or purification. Notice verse 12, and he's going to bring out here in these verses one of the most succinct and yet meaty statements of this relationship. So the grace of God appears, verse 11, brings salvation Training us, that grace trains us, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then you see the phrase, and to live. So it trains us to renounce negatively, and the grace of God trains us to live a certain way. Let's take that negative first. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The good news of Jesus crucified and risen saves us from the eternal penalty of our sin, verse 11. But then that same grace trains us to reject godless ways. The ways from which Jesus indeed saved us. So to turn to Christ for salvation is always to turn at the same time from ungodliness and worldly lust. Do we grasp that about grace? Do we grasp that sense? There's some Christians that I I read about and hear what they're saying once in a while and the way that they're teaching. It sounds to me almost like they think grace is my freedom to live as I choose and your responsibility to leave me alone. I have grace in Jesus and I can do what I want to do. I have grace. I'm under grace. But notice here, in the mercies of God, that grace teaches us actually to say no, not just to say yes. God's grace functions to help us restrict certain passions and godless practices. That is His grace. Grace then not just merely libertarian freedom, but grace, the freedom to say no to that which destroys us spiritually, what harms us. So training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We could say it this way. The more God's saving grace genuinely amazes you, the less sin interests you. The more God's saving grace amazes you, the less 
sin interests you. It loses its taste. And positively then, verse 12, with respect to ourselves, you need to notice the uh, positive ideas, to live, it trains us then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To live self-controlled there as it speaks to ourselves. And interesting again here, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, self-controlled. In, in the Cretan context, this was a really important virtue, and it is for us. To control the passions of my heart is a vital idea. And then with respect to others, it is to live upright lives. That is to treat people well, to do what is right. With respect to God, grace teaches us to live godly lives. That is to live with reverence toward Him. A healthy fear of breaking His law or dishonoring His name. I think Michael was right. This changes everything. How we relate to the area of self-control. How we relate to others. How we relate to God. What we deny of the passions that are normal to us and promoted in our world. This is a whole new way of living a way of genuine grace, teaching us and training us to live like Christ. But I want you to not miss that last phrase of verse 12. Notice there, it's underlined in my text, in the present age. In the present age. That is now. He saves us to rescue us from the penalty of sin, but He saves us for now. To do something now. To transform the way that we live now in this present age. Christ came for that reason. In the present age. So we have past salvation appears in Christ. Present, a God-honoring life that results. And then all of this is with an eye actually to the future. Verse 13. So all of this while we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. That's shorthand for the happy prospect of the return of Christ. You see the word appeared in verse 11. As it speaks of his first coming, he appeared. Now here in verse 13 we have appeared, that same word used again, of, of course, his second coming. So he appeared in the first coming, he's appearing in a second coming, and grace teaches us to keep our eyes trained for that return, to know that end. And we note here, just a side point, but of great significance, is that he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think this is referring to Jesus alone. That is, Jesus is called God here very pointedly. Now, the Greek text helps us here with a construction that we don't have in English, we don't use in English. But if God the Father and God the Son were in view, the text would read this, the great God and the Savior Jesus Christ. But the Greek text doesn't do that. It says the great God and Savior. And when that construction is used, it always refers to one person. So we have here with, the, with this rule of grammar a very decided uh, knowledge that's even, that, that, that passes what we can do in English. Because in English, as you read it, it could be God the Father and God the Son. But in the Greek text, it's actually 
a statement of Christ being God. And of course, we don't need just this verse to establish that. It's established along many lines in the New Testament, but a very significant proof text uh, to the fact that Jesus was seen as God, holy God, by the apostles. But at any rate, on this point again, waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for the return of Christ, the appearing of, this, of the glory that will come. He came in his first coming in humility. There was some glory as the angels shone their light and sang to the shepherds. But it was a coming in humility. He will come the second time in glory, in splendor, in majesty. We're looking for a great event as he comes again. And the more real Christ's glorious return is in the eyes of faith, the less pull this broken world will exert upon us. In light of Christ's return, I see my possessions as temporal. My accomplishments and goals will soon fade away. My life labors will be set aside for far greater glory. This is all temporary. This is momentary. I am looking forward to what will be my best life in eternity. I think of it when I'm mowing the grass sometimes. How, how's, am, I, am I living a straight life? When you mow the grass and you look across a long stretch of lawn, and if you just look down at the wheels on your push mower, or I guess on a rider, uh, anything, but if you're just looking down at where you are, you look back and it was a pretty crooked uh, line. But how do you get that line straight? You look at the end. You look where you're going and you aim at it the whole time. You don't move your eyes off and you're, you're cutting then a straight line. In a sense, that might picture our Christian life as we look to the hope of Christ's coming. My eyes are always set on that future goal and it keeps everything in this life in perspective. It keeps it straight. It keeps it moving toward where we're actually going, not losing sight by thinking that this world is everything. When you genuinely love someone, you look forward to seeing them. And if we do not long to see Christ, if we do not anticipate His return, if it really has no effect upon our lives, we have to wonder if we really know Him. If there really is a love in our heart for Christ, we might even ask at this point, well, how do I develop that love? How do I, I mean, I, I mean, it's really easy for us and it pricks our conscience when we ask the question, how, how much have you thought about the return of Christ this week? It's true for all of us because the world is just thrown at us. We have to solve problems and deal with issues and visual all there right in front of us every day, all these things to do, all these things to address. And the future, I don't look up very naturally. How might we nurture such a forward look? One thing I would suggest is that at bare minimum, at least, read one of the Gospels every year. If you don't do that, if you're not reading all four of them every year, if that's not a pattern, at least start with reading the Gospels every year. You're not going to long for Jesus' return unless you consider his life in his first coming. So do that. Secondly, routinely pray for Christ's return. How often do we pray that he will come again? 
Make that just a normal part of your prayer life. There are some things I, I perceive, I would suspect that most of us pray about all the time. Pray about the return of Christ. Pray that he would come in the right time and come soon. Then thirdly, refuse to set your affections on the possessions and vain pursuits of this world. That's not very tangible as an action point, but it's a practice and a discipline we must develop. Maybe to those of you particularly that are younger, when you really look forward to something, when you get something you've always wanted, when there's a goal that is there, there's something you really want to see happen, always look at those passions and say, I've got to keep this in perspective. I can't make too much of this. Our life here in this world is transitory. And what we gain, what we secure, we will lose. But we will never lose Christ. And then number four, in Matthew 9 and verse 15, Jesus was rebuked for the fact that his disciples did not fast. Uh, The Pharisees are fasting all the time. They're setting food aside to devote themselves to God. Why don't you fast? And of course he said, the bridegroom's here. It's time to celebrate. But the time will come when they will fast. When? When the bridegroom is taken away. And the implication there is that we set food aside periodically to look forward to the return of Christ. That will help you focus on it. I, I just as by way of suggestion, wake up one morning and say, I'm not going to eat until dinner tonight. And give that day and every time hunger pangs come, and they will, you say, I need to eat. And your brain says, oh no, I'm not eating. Why am I not eating? And there you pray for the return of Christ. Just get up one morning and say, this day I will focus uniquely on the return of Jesus and pray to that end. Ideas like this, we need to work to wean ourselves off the thought that this world is everything. And everywhere we live, this world is screaming at us, this is it. Get all you can, because this is it. This isn't it. It changes everything for the believer. When we see the grace of God, we look to the end and we long for that blessed hope. Long for it. Now, in verse 14, really just sub-points of this reference to Christ, but we have here in verse 14 an encapsulation of the gospel. It's beautiful. Speaking of Jesus Christ, verse 14 He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us. That refers to Jesus' death in the sinner's place. Why did he give himself for us? This goes back to verse 11. He appeared, he came, he saves. He gave himself positively to redeem us. But from what? From all lawlessness, secondly, to purify for himself a people of his own possession. So he came to redeem us, to rescue us from our way of lawlessness, from the way of breaking his law, to rescue us from the patterns of a disobedient life. God's grace came to save you from that now, in this present age. 
And secondly, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That is, by Jesus' death, God decisively purifies a people who belong exclusively to him. Christ's death also then intends to produce in us an eagerness to do the works that honor God. So again, he comes to save, but also to sanctify in this present age. Remember Ephesians 2.10, which was read earlier, and so ideally states this, what by way of parallel. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's now. That's not in eternity we will begin to live righteously. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is part of his agenda, part of his plan, is to bring us to a place of good works where we live a godly life. We see that here again back in verse 14 of Titus chapter 2. To purify a people for his own possession, to say, they're my treasure, I have given to them my life, my grace is poured out upon them, and I'm saving them that they would have a zeal for good works. That they would be zealous to do what is right. This is how grace changes everything in our lives. Now there's a a drive, a passion, a love to do what is pleasing to the Lord. So under this grace, we want to control our tongues. To speak with purity and grace and love and kindness. We want to use our speech to witness Christ's saving grace. Under this grace, we long to control our passions, our love for money, to keep our sexual passions in the right direction where Christ points them, our entertainment, submission to authority, and these types of passions to keep these under control, going the direction that Christ wants them to go. Under this grace, we want to love others and give our time and our money and our skills to serve and help people. We want to be humble and wise and faithful and God-centered. We rejoice to read God's Word, to pray and to be with His people, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds. It changes everything. His grace is doing that, Christian, in your life now. In this present age, He's redeemed you for this kind of life. The beauty of this life. Now we will sin. And we will fail one another. We will not relate to the things of this earth or to the people of this earth the way that we should always. But there is repentance There is forgiveness of sin, and there is a good work that God has given us to do. And so, finishing out this chapter again, the preaching of God's Word in the assembly is part of God's plan to help us grow in our zeal for good works as God's treasured possession. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In the preaching of the church, there is to be a continual call to the godly life that Jesus saved us to live. 
I'm not saying that this is the central purpose of these verses, but they do bring out very uniquely the, what genuine Christianity always combines. And I'd like to just note this as we uh, meditate for a few more moments on these verses together. There's three essential elements in genuine Christianity. The first is sound doctrine. You don't have Christianity without sound doctrine. The second is godly living. Without godly living, you just have dead orthodoxy. But the third is new affections. Deep desires and zeal for God. Let's think of them in turn. Without without sound doctrine, of course, we have nothing. Verse 11, the truth of the gospel is all important. Christ appeared. His death, what does it mean? He died in behalf of sinners to pay the penalty of our sin. His resurrection, what does it mean? He defeated death as he said that he would, and he gives eternal life to those who trust in him. That death and that resurrection are vicarious. That is, what he has done is applied to us, becomes our death and resurrection. We need this truth. We can't invent it, and we cannot do without it. But secondly, this sound doctrine is never an end in itself. And what better book than the book of Titus to display that? A time and time again, we have seen this over these weeks. But the entire New Testament, the entire Old Testament, always reminding us that faith in God is not merely a doctrinal matter, but an ethical matter. That is, it is a transforming, it has a transforming effect upon God's people. It changes how we live. Michael had it right. This changes everything. It does. The true grace of God changes everything. It is a radical, transformative power in our lives. But if it were possible, could you imagine stopping here? No. Genuine Christianity is not only the truth that is proclaimed and the life of godliness that follows, but it follows with new affections, with zeal, with desire for God, with desires for Him and to do what is right. A zeal to do what is right, a deeply felt love for Christ, and a longing to honor Him. So remember these three ideas in genuine Christianity. We see them all here. Verse 11, sound doctrine. Verses 12 through 13, ethical behavior. And verse 14, a zeal, a heart inflamed for God. It's all right there. You may say at this point, um, I don't know if I add up. I look at affections for God and they're not very strong. And I look at the way that I'm living my life and I fall short so often. And doctrine, I know the truths of God's Word in many respects, but I just don't feel like I get it all. Where there's that sensitive conscience, I would encourage you to take heart. Certainly examine your salvation. Come to know by God's grace whether you truly know Him. But I would say take heart there. It's a long game. Look long. Know that sin's power has been broken. This is part of the truth you've got to grasp and you must trust it. 
Jesus' death broke that power of sin. It doesn't matter how much you want to say in your mind, I don't think it happened. He did. Trust that, believe that, and know that as you move forward. Confess sin. Be faithful to Him. Be praying for your growth. But take heart. This is a long game. But perhaps the problem is not a sensitive conscience for you, but an ignorant conscience. You think of Christianity just as sound doctrine. And you're comfortable with the fact that you've got some facts about the Bible. You kind of know how it works. You know what's right and you know what's wrong and therefore you're a Christian. Not true. That knowledge of what God has revealed in His Word is absolutely essential. But it's not saving grace. There must be the grace of God that comes, the grace of God that is received. The good news of God's grace is undeserved favor for sinners, making them His children and reconciling them to Christ. These are truths that you must know, but they are truths that you must trust. And where that trust is real, there are affections There are new desires. There is a joy and a drive to honor Christ with your life. If there's no zeal to do so, there's no internal change of heart, you need to really carefully consider whether you're in the faith, whether you've really received genuine saving grace. Now again, remember the first point. Don't be discouraged by that. We're not going to light it up as Christians every day of our life and we're never going to actually achieve all that we should. We will always fall short of the glory of God until we are glorified. But if there's no desire there, no, Christianity is much more than simply knowing the facts. It's much more than behaving in a way that pleases people. There will be, through genuine grace, a zeal to do right. A desire to do what God wants you to do. Is that desire there? If it is, you say, I fall short. It's not what it ought to be, but it's there. I long to serve Christ. I want to live a godly life. My hero for the way that I want my life to look is not some rock star, is not some athlete, is not some rich person. It's Jesus. I want to live like him. I want that heart. I want that life. Then I would suggest to you that is the grace of God. That's just pure grace. We would never want that without his grace. May we seek it. And may we rejoice in it. And let's go and live it by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this grace. We're thankful for the reminder that it is rich and free and eternal. We long for the return of our Savior. We pray that these days would end. But far more than just wanting to leave this life behind, we long to be with you. We long to see Christ face to face. We long for the faith to be sight. Until that time, we know that you are changing us and purifying us. That in this present age, we would have a zeal to do what is right. Thank you for this grace that's been poured out upon us. 
a grace that doesn't leave us in our sin and leave us to ourselves to do what we feel like doing, but a grace that says, here's what you should want to do. Long for it. Follow me. We thank you, Father, for this grace. And we pray again in behalf of any who know not Jesus as Savior. We pray that you draw them to the light to see what they cannot see and to pour out grace upon them which they do not deserve. Draw to saving light those who need Christ as Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.